Welcome to the Forest Garden Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Adam Crow of Aina Exotics, based in Papa'aloa, Hawaii. In this episode, we are hoping to delve into the permaculture orchard design elements of Adam's rare fruit farm. I know you, Adam, have been cultivating for some time, growing exotic fruits that many people have simply never heard of. Today, we're going to dive in and nerd out on some, some of these really cool and really rare tropical fruits and perennials that you've been cultivating. For our listeners, Ben and I are based in a roughly USDA 6B borderline 7A climate zone, whereas Adam is stewarding land in something closer to a zone 11 or 12 climate zone, which is something to keep in mind when we talk about perennial plants on this podcast. Adam's farm is based on Big Island in Hawaii, about a 40-minute drive north from Hilo. In this podcast, we frequently discuss cold-hardy perennial plants for resilient systems, but today we're going to jump into the world of cultivating perennial plants in an edible forest garden designed in the heart of a Hawaiian tropical paradise. <laughs> it's not bad. Adam, could you, uh, since uh, we've, we're just meeting now, could you just give me a brief background on how you ended up in Hawaii and sort of what you're, what you're doing out there? Yeah, sure. I've uh, been out here since I was in about second grade in the islands. I moved to Big Island and got some land in around 2012. So I've been working on this system since then. I'm a musician as well, and I put most of my time into that before I came out here and did, did plants and got, you know, obsessed with them and went down this deep, deep rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm working for the plant team now pretty much all the time. They don't let me do much else. It's just how it is. What sort of uh, plants do you, if you, if you were to say that you specialize or do mainly work with edible uh, fruits and vegetables, or how would you classify like the types of things, the plants and, and things that you're interested in? Yeah, I did kind of focus most of my energy into into edibles over these last years. I did, you know, I studied uh, permaculture and, and, and went through that. And, and that definitely had a pretty transformative effect on my um, installation process and, and how I went about getting around some of the problems that were surfacing and, and you know, really going to the drawing board and, and figuring out how to like deal with some of these obstacles, which were sort of seeming insurmountable in the early phases. And um, permaculture helped me to like surmount some of them and make my progress steady. And, and so now I'm really focusing on, um, at first I was really focusing on sort of food security mentality and, and just getting a lot of the, you know, Hawaii has these great canoe plants, which are like the taro and the, we call it kalo and, um, and a lot of the starchy tubers, uh, sweet potatoes and, and the bananas and the sugar cane and that stuff all grows real well. So you can sort of boost your confidence, um, in right. your growing efforts out here. If you, um, you know, follow the role of, of what worked here. And then after a while you start to go, Hmm, maybe I could grow cabbage or, you know, I, I, there's this guy down the road who's growing this. And, and, and then you start to be like, man, I got to figure out like 
what seeds, you know, are going to do good and what varieties. And then that just becomes something you could just indefinitely obsess over and research probably. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, so I really got into vegetables and, and figuring out how to grow, uh, just regular vegetables you buy at the supermarket. And then in the process of that, I was always just obsessed with edible perennials and collecting as many as I could, um, stuff that would, you know, be from places that might not be like I, things that people hadn't really tried out here, things that people told me I couldn't do. <clears throat> I tried extra hard to figure out how to do and just failed a lot of times. And yeah, <laughs> it's kind of just how, uh, how it's been. Tropical agriculture is, is very challenging. And, and have, do you have experience with it at all? Michael was saying you, you actually have um, some interesting plants yourself from the tropical lands. I've always been interested in, in tropical plants just because the diversity is pretty staggering in the tropical world. And yeah, I read a book called The Fruit Hunters probably over a decade ago. The author travels the world to discover new and interesting fruits and interview the people who collect them and grow them. And really opened my eyes to what's out there. So I just dove in and learned as much as I could. And I've traveled to a couple of different tropical countries to places probably kind of similar to your, your site where you just have people who love to grow, collecting all sorts of different plants from around the world. So I try to grow whatever I can, sometimes as an annual here in uh, Chile zone, zone six, but I intend to make it down to the tropics again soon. So I'm curious, you mentioned that you had some challenges early on and maybe you still have challenges uh, in your climate. What Did you learn any like takeaways or tricks on how to uh, get away with growing some of those, uh, like those vegetables that people say you can't grow, whether that's cabbage or cool season vegetables? Like, do you have any tactics or techniques you can share to grow some of those challenging plants? And wait, before we even get into that, we should have Adam sort of describe to our listeners the uh, challenges that exist in a tropical climate. Because we, we in Zone 6, we don't have to deal with things like pigs or fire ants. And uh, I think we should even before, you know, preamble to that question is like, what are the obstacles? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's, no, that's true. Um the, the things that led me to really have to go to the drawing board, like you mentioned, yeah, were the uh, feral pigs. They have a sort of way of rooting in the ground around anything that you mulch. So, you know, all the rules, all the, all the great things that I had like learned, you know, were, were just based around like mulch and, and straw and, and wood chips and you know, all these methods of making like these low maintenance, like long lasting um, edible systems, I, I'd like, okay, I got it now, you know, <laughs> and then the, that's basically like just putting out like a huge bait of dinner for pigs and, and they just come through and they just knows all the earthworms and, and they just, your worms are gone and, and it's a whole mess. And then also what they like to do is mark their territory by girdling your most prolific, valuable grafted fruit trees. Oh <laughs> so, my gosh. Um, so, you know, you've got four years in and, and this is popping and this is kicking. And then you go out one day and it's just like your prized mango is just like girdled or your, your, your breadfruit, which have, which would have provided like thousands of pounds of food for my, 
for me by now, you know, um, is, is, you know, set back indefinitely. And so these sorts of things are still happening, but then, you know, you get proper fencing, you know, you get proper, um, like in our case, we got sheep net fencing and we have cows that, you know, go into the landscape and graze down the really tall grasses. And then um, once they've done their grazing, you know, it's, it's by no means like clean, but you can work in it as opposed to just what it would be otherwise is you're attacking it with, you know, a grass blade weed eater or bringing in like a mini excavator or something, you know, to deal with this grass because it's, it's a challenging uh, map of grass. <laughs> you should also mention that the grass that you're dealing with is you know, considerably more, uh, it's, it's a different breed of grass than what most Americans are used to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the Floridians uh, might know about it, but, um, yeah, Guinea grass is one of those grasses that was, um, brought out as a forage and, um, it hopped the fence and basically made its way into all the landscapes, almost, um, in all the lower elevation areas of the islands <laughs> it grows four inches a day um which is great for cattle <laughs> it's great for cattle but like if you're like planting um you know these food systems and stuff all but the hardiest and most vigorous of plants just don't stand a chance without really consistent uh, levels of weeding that are almost you know beyond reason but it's really important, you know, you, you, you get it early on and just weed it over and over again. And eventually you produce shade and, and, and shade is really what you strive for in these, in these systems. Otherwise, you know, the, the perennial peanut uh, is a great ground cover if you can establish that. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's, it's one of those ones that it's tricky to establish some of these things in, in strictly organic contexts. Um, and the labor is, is really troublesome, but you get a, you get a patch going and, and, and keep it weed free. And then you have a patch you can sort of spread out from that. And, and a lot of people will do orchards out here with exclusively the perennial peanut. And it, it just looks real nice. It keeps a nice low mat. So it's, it's basically like do the shade, like get shade as quickly as possible or, you know, use like a dependable ground cover like that and, and slowly like get it established. And then, you know, yeah, sorry. So you, you mentioned like what vegetables are, are, are good when you've dealt with some of these like obstacles, which, which in that case is, is related to our rain primarily, right? You know, we get um, like over a hundred inches uh, some years. So we're looking for uh, crops that are going to you know, be able to handle the sun and handle the rain. And, 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 you know, it, it was challenging to find heirloom uh, vegetables that would do it for us in, in, in context to like the cool season vegetables and, and things that are more like your supermarket vegetables. Like we could always find cool, unique tropical crops to, to try to grow, but you're kind of looking for keywords like heat tolerant, varieties like fusarium wilt resistance bacterial wilt resistance you know any of those fungal diseases or things that cause damping off are like you try to prevent those by uh you know keeping stuff keeping stuff clean or or whatever in your nursery uh, but it's, ch it's challenging you know but once you have 
bacterial wilt, like we got it in our vegetable garden. Now any tomato we try to plant will just liquefy and perish, you know? Oh. Um, you it's, a, it's a horrible Are the uh, heat stress and uh, too much moisture, humidity, rainfall causing diseases and, and pathogens, would, would those two be the main uh, challenges to growing vegetables in your area? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, um, if you got your if you got your area like you know fenced in well and stuff, and you protect it um, from the feral pigs, you can work. You know, um, maybe make beds that are sort of elevated, and, and water kind of drains down the pathways a little bit. Like some things, if it's kind of sitting flat out here, it can get pretty muddy and swampy. And and when those big storms do come. I mean, I know farmers who, who, you know, have lost like $30,000 crop overnight from like a heavy rain and, and it just washes through the farm, you know? So there, there's challenges like that that are, you know, more on the catastrophic side. <laughs> but like, I guess the, uh, when it comes to the crops, like integrity and stuff, we, we also happen to have more uh, pests out here than anywhere in the USA. <laughs> Per square uh, mile, the Big Island of Hawaii takes the cake. So that is always something to consider when you're doing your your vegetable gardening. And so we've done like soil amending, like based by based on you know our soil tests, doing specific amending, and and really like trying to keep like minerals and microbes in check, and really just strategizing on that front and combining that with you know research into the the proper varietals that are disease resistant. And then, you know, sometimes just finding something that's like pretty good and then saving the good ones over a few years, you know, and, and kind of watching it just get better and better too. You know, any of the heirlooms that have worked for us, it's like they become their own little grail of a find, you know, because we, we, we do grow hybrids just to like have food that's like, gonna work <laughs> you know what i mean for sure it's like always question of of plants that are kind of adapted to your area even if maybe they didn't originally come from you know uh seed sources in hawaii uh, or maybe they did but in either case you're you're kind of filtering for uh which ones can tolerate the conditions and uh can stand up to some of that those pests and disease and heat and moisture and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Adam, before, like, on that note, I mean, something we've talked about in the past is how long it took to just find a tomato that really, yeah. you know, settled in your landscape. And to most Americans living on the East Coast, West Coast, whatever, like, everyone can grow tomatoes, you know. So I, I think that might be an interesting story as to how, you know, how many trials and tribulations you went through just to get that tomato that really worked. <laughs> yeah it's funny when you put your mind to something like that and, and you know we've we've kind of pulled it off for like most different crops we've got that one thing that that works um but for, for tomatoes i gotta say like growing those heirloom tomatoes is one of the things i miss like most because I, I did grow vegetables in northern california for a while and, and grew those like big juicy summertime cherokee purples and like just stuff that's off the hook, you know, and, and I, I miss it. And I just have accepted that I won't get to have that experience out here, you know? Um, yeah. 
but but the but the greenhouse people pull it off like you can you can set up a, a a house out here you know and it has to be a little different design and airflow and stuff and you can grow all that stuff and, and most likely people are spraying like whatever organic stuff they can if they're trying to do it without chemicals to pull it off so we've just found something that like we don't have to fuss with and do much with that we've been saving seeds for it's it's actually a Baker Creek um, score. It's it's the German lunchbox tomato. Huh. Um, yeah, it's. I'd highly recommend it though to everybody. It'll do great for for anywhere. I bet. And it forms these kind of. They're just a, a bit smaller than like a, a smaller Roma, maybe. But they're big and they form in like these big clusters, and and they're really ne- they never get stung by the fruit flies like most other stuff does. But I've also grown some decent slicers. Like I did like a ton of research on on these Korean breeding programs where they're like growing stuff out in Vietnam and other places. And there's this variety called Tropic Boy that I guess is based off of like Better Boy and they, they bred it out in the tropics. And that thing holds up pretty well as a slicer. Yeah. Very cool. Uh- <laughs> So I could talk, I mean, we could talk about the tomato varieties that didn't, didn't work at your spot all day. I, (laughs) I'm interested in, you were talking about like the complete deluge of rain that you guys get up in Hamakua, which for our listeners, Hamakua is an area of the uh, Northern coast of Big Island. And to most people in a temperate climate, we just do not have to deal with the sort of obstacles that you have to deal with so like when preparing your site or when you acquired the site and then decided like this is going to be the setup did you make any sort of like land augmentation to deal with the the you know could thirty thousand dollar loss of washing away your old orchard problem (laughs) yeah you you know a lot of the time in permaculture when people learn about it you know the swales are are brought up a lot i did a lot of research on that and then just kind of came to the conclusion like oh man maybe swales aren't really for me and you started to kind of talk to people all around and people are like what swales you know like you mean for the driveway and um it's kind of it's kind of a trip like you start to realize like oh you may be instead of retention you sort of should be looking at like diversion, like in like a realistic way. A lot of the, you'll see like in Southeast Asia and stuff where they grow durian and some of these really important tropical tree crops. That's really what I'm mainly into is all that stuff. So I, I, I got lucky. And, and, and when you go to the part of the property where I'm growing a lot of this stuff, there actually is an old diversion from like sugarcane days. So it, it actually takes water away that would, kind of you know otherwise often wash away a lot of the soil that i'm building with these systems you know because when you produce shade it's like there's going to be a lot of exposed dirt and there's going to be exposed dirt when you're starting the system because i you know i'll tail it just to get it started and then plant it all up and fill it in and then once it fills in a lot of the ground covers that i planted kind of die off and taper off so then if those big rains come and sweep down the you know we're basically on just a foothill all the way from mount Achaia to the ocean so the water just goes downhill and, and, and in, in these big storms if you look out in the landscape 
you just see a flow of water that just covers the ground, like for several inches, just moving like a sheet along the whole landscape, you know? So that kind of thing is, is it's, you got to just see it to like, believe it. And when you talk about like preparing for something like that, like, man, it's like, it's really like, you start thinking like, I really need to think about my roads and my like, you know, infrastructure and, and, and different things like that um, start to take precedence sort of over um, some of the like water infiltration methodologies that you thought you would be like pursuing, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. For me, like it was, it was sort of, yeah. Illuminating to realize that like, I, I need to, you know, just get plants in the ground and, and obviously prevent soil erosion as the most important thing and not really focus as much on, on some of these um, principles that I thought I would, you know. Swales don't do everything, I guess. <laughs> They're not for everybody. And you don't really get that like memo either. You know, it's kind of like, it just is this golden lore that they're, they're just the best thing but you know I, I i'm not saying there and there's parts of this island that can obviously hugely benefit from swale um work but i just i don't feel like like we can we terraces are great out here because you get to kind of feel like you know you can walk around on flat ground sometimes one question and, I, is um i kind of always knew that swales wouldn't be the kind of perfect answer to to all the water infiltration or runoff issues. But in your situation, you described a lot of, you know, water rushing downhill and sweeping away uh, any bare soil and how big of a problem that is. I'm wondering, would a, do you think a swale uphill that would help capture some of that runoff before it is able to kind of pick up speed and pick up soil um, and trying to infiltrate that like further upslope, would that help at all, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my original design plan was um, basically to get a pond going at the top of the property and, and have like swales that connected um, a couple of, you know, tiers that, that brought the water down. And I think if you retained it, like, like in that sense, you know, um, where you had ponds and, and, and had like stuff that slowed stuff down, it, it would work. I think on a more kind of passive level though, like, like I wouldn't shoot for like big drainage. Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I wouldn't shoot for big swales because, um, you know, you're creating like when water hits that it's, it becomes quite a momentous, you know, thing. So this kind of the smaller it is and the more passive it is, I think um, there's less of a chance of kind of getting it wrong because out here it's just like, it's such a critical volume of water that like, if you sort of, you know, were in your early stages of trialing these things, like, like I was, I, um, I could have probably screwed something up and, and, and had a bunch of water like rushed down towards my neighbor's house or, or something, you know what I mean? It's interesting that in your landscape, water, which is something that you have care so much about, and in my landscape, we is like so coveted, you know, in places where that are experiencing drought. Uh, right. A drought, a drought for you is so very different from most of the U.S. But water can become the enemy, you know, it can become an obstacle in <laughs> your in your, and that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's. It's interesting out here that we are getting what we call droughts. Stuff stays green, 
but it definitely is scarce rain and it's really challenging because I just plant like, you know, I plant as if the rain's got my back when I go to sleep. And in those periods of drought, it just means my, like all my efforts and plantings and different things I do just turn into me outside with a hose for like three hours a day, you know? <laughs> and, no, uh, and, and I know that right after this meeting, you have to go and do that. Um, so absolutely. I, yep. I apologize. Down. No, but, uh, why don't we get into the fun part of this uh, little interview here, which I am mostly going to defer to Ben, who has way more tropical plant knowledge than I do. Um, but we are interested in, the I don't know if you could come up with some of your your top favorites of the things that you're growing the the the, the stuff that you took a while to source you know the stuff that people who are just your average gardener do not know about like durian or mama sapote or whatever you choose to talk about I would I I'm just gonna sit back and listen and I'm hoping that Ben here is gonna have lots of questions because I, I just I know that that's gonna be the case <laughs> yeah um, tropical trees we're talking about are definitely something that is, you know, my primary obsession and, and collective endeavor. I have friends out here who, who just happen to be really amazing collectors and, and they were in it for like a decade before I got out here. And so I was lucky in that sense. And then I have friends now that are, you know, just doing like way more than I could ever imagine, have imagined myself doing. And and so just seeing them do it and it's just kind of this island is just turning into like the craziest, most amazing tropical fruit collection in the world. And it's just something to behold. We have a facility over here that started bringing in like durians and uh, Lang Sot and some of these different Definitely. things recently from all over the world because they got it approved to have like this quarantine facility. So that's going to be fun. We're going to have a bunch of new durian cultivars to play with once they're, they're quarantined for two years. And uh, so I, I got into that durian family of things and, and started to realize there's all these sub, you know, species in the families. And I ended up doing research into subspecies of, of kind of all the different exotic fruits that, you know, most people have heard of or haven't. And so when someone asked me like, what do you grow? I'll sort of be like, have you ever heard of a rambutan? You know, and, and a lot of people are like, no. And then, you know, if, if they're like, yes, then I can say, okay, have you ever heard of a yellow rambutan or the, you know, Latin names? Like, I think we have anonas growing and, and a lot of people have heard of soursop. So if they say soursop, I'll be like, okay, have you heard of anona? Deliciosa, Relinia, uh, is a, a, a nona, which is a lemon meringue pie fruit, they call it. And, and so we have a few of those trees and they always just completely blow people's mind. Just that fruit alone it has a lemon meringue pie taste. And, and so you find out there's all these different fruits like related to the, like, the top dog of that family. And you sort of go down the list and go, okay, what sounds like it would do good in my environment? you start realizing that maybe in the family, there's like a common rootstock uh, that you can use in grafting, you know? And, and, and so not everybody knows, but a rootstock is, is a seedling that you plant and then you put a good variety on it. And 
it turns into a better thing than it would have been if you hadn't. And so you find out that, like, for instance, uh, Jabotacaba is an excellent little fruit that tastes like Concord grapes. Uh, big shout out to Jabotacaba. There's like over 100 types of it with all these unique little variations in foliage and flavor and, and fruit. And you can graft almost all of them onto common rootstock called Sabara. And um, so you, you can uh, look around and find out that there's people who are collecting this and it kind of is it just, just that one fruit. Like you could dedicate your life to it and never probably find all the different varieties if you traveled the world. And so then you find out there's like a book that's in Portuguese, you know, written by this guy in Brazil. And it's like an Atlantean, not Atlantean, sorry. Um, it's an Atlantic forest um, tree. And then you find out that in the Atlantic forest, there's all these other kind of sister trees and it's just endless and it's amazing. And then you find out they all have these, you know, excellent um, flavors and unique profiles. And, and it's just absurd that we like don't have access to more of them in supermarkets, but you know, that's, that's why you got to move out to places in the world that have these things or go out to them. And we're lucky in big Island. People are lucky in South Florida. There's some pretty amazing collections out there, you know, for people who want to make the pilgrimage that are on the U S mainland. There's people selling the fruit now out of uh, South Florida. There's like Miami fruit and some of these companies, which, you know, for, for quite a, a substantial price, you can get some of these um, cool, interesting fruits. But uh, so we're just getting into collecting and, and, and being able to propagate them in our nursery. We're starting to, um, you know, get more get more of a collection going that we could sell but i've just been trying to get them in the ground and, and keep them healthy and um yeah so sorry if i went on there but Adam, just the gist of that hearing about all these all these fruits I, i've only tried tried one or two types of durian before but um i know there's like you said there's the top dog uh that you know maybe not everyone has heard of but people are starting to hear about like soursop or durian, but then as you get in, you start to realize there's these other related species or, or different cultivars that are sometimes wildly different than, than the one that maybe more people have, have heard about. Like there's a red fleshed durian, there's some orange flesh durians and just some small ones, ones that crosses with uh, related species or um, so it's, it just seems like it goes on goes on forever. And, and sure enough, when, you know, I join, one thing I like to do is join Facebook groups related to plant species or, or plant families. And the, the amount of dedicated individuals, probably a lot in Hawaii that collect and propagate and grow and share, it's, it's staggering. And people just want to connect on there and share photos and inv advice on how to grow some of these things. So yeah, I would, I'd recommend for people who want to learn more about these fruits is to, to join a social media group about them. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Jaboticaba. I've never tried one, but I actually, I bought a, a little tiny plant on eBay and uh, I've got it growing. I've got a red Jaboticaba plant growing on my porch, um, but uh, cool. doing too well. The climate in Missouri is a little different than climate in uh, <laughs> yeah. see if I can keep it alive. So, That's awesome. yeah, so other than the ones that you mentioned, are there any fruits that you would say are your, your favorite, whether that's a, cult, a cultivar of a particular 
type of fruits or just a just a species in, in general? And then the second question would be, are there any ones that you want to try uh, or want to grow that you haven't yet? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that second, I could go on and on on that second question. You know, I, I, I have a lot of different fruit. Some of the family that I really um, treasure is the Articarpus family, which is uh, jackfruit, you know, uh, relatives. The Chempa deck mm-hmm. is just the all like one of the most explosive, wonderful tasting fruits you could imagine. I had a chance to try the Chempa deck in Costa Rica and it tasted like uh, kind of marshmallowy. The texture was just very interesting and, and so delicious. I only got to have one bite, one fruit had to <laughs> wish I had, could try more. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones where you got to stop yourself and just slow down and, 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 you know, really let it jump out of the juice and out, out of the flesh into your mouth. And, and just some of those fruits in that family are just explode. Like, you know, they, they all say juicy fruit gum was, was inspired by jackfruit. Right. And, and so there's this kind of like, I think there's this deep mechanism that fires off in the American brain you know, maybe where it's just like, it hits that juicy fruit receptor and that is like fulfilled. And then you get this other mechanism that's like something completely new and you just can't even fathom it or something. Cause um, there's this other one in that family called Keladang and it's kind of like a Champadec, but has this like fire truck red flesh. And I had one of those and it, it just like, it was another, it was a journey into a flavor place that I, you know, my mind just couldn't even form words for. And and I I still can't like define it, you know? So there's, there's stuff like that where, um, you know, I've heard this or that about different fruits. I had a Maprang the other day, which is kind of like a a little mango-y relative. Uh, I don't know if it's actually officially related, but it's, it's very similar to mangoes a mango I kind of judge by you know the juiciness and the and low fiber or, or whatever and, and some of these fruits they don't really check the box of, of low fiber but the flavor profile of of some of the mango relatives like kasturi is one of them that just tastes like like passion f- fruit wow. like intermingled with some other crazy like maybe like orange like dream beverage that you used to drink as a kid like merges into you know these mythical places where all of a sudden you know it it doesn't matter that it has fiber you just have this big thing in your mouth and it's just fulfilling all your taste bud receptor um you know things and and i i could go on and on it just it's there's some of these fruits you just can't even uh, form words for and i um Adam, if, if I could interject, I'm interested in some of the, and, and please don't let me defer away from Ben's two-part question, um, because I still want you, I still want to know the fruits that you haven't grown. That was a question I had myself, but you once told me about some fruits that grow on Big Island in your tropical climate, or, you know, Big Island has many microclimates. You mentioned that there were Asian pear growing in like Hilo area without any cold climate, like, you know, any chill hours. 
have you ever thought about experimenting with you know, cultivars of fruits that are generally not grown in the tropics and somehow succeed out there? Yes, that sounds like the kind of thing I do get into. I've seen people fruit some things that people wouldn't expect uh, to work for sure. And we're lucky we have this place that um, brings out a lot of varieties from, um, I believe is Dave Wilson Nursery. And if you actually go on his website, there's a lot of low chill varieties, but it doesn't say no chill. I just, it's like a bold statement when you say no chill for some of these temperate crops. And, and there's, you know, uh, apple out here we have, that's the Anna. I think the Golden Dorset, uh, they will all fruit a little bit at, at, you know, elevations that you would, you'd be surprised. And I was blown away somewhat. This was kind of a Facebook once off. You, you mentioned about the Asian pear. Um, I just, there was some lady who had, you know, she was like, what fruit is this? What cultivar do you think it is? It's a pear. You know, people slowly figured out that it was this Asian pear that kind of looks like an apple kind of in shape, um, more than a pear. It definitely was, a, a, you know, curious enough thing for me to where I like researched it in a crazy way until I found like an image online where that looked like it. And then I went and I found it at some nursery and I ordered an Asian pear. Um, and so now I actually have that in a pot growing and hopefully it will be the same thing and not just like, you know, my, my obsession of wasting money on random plants that might not actually produce fruit, but it, it's, it's something that I do uh, like to try. And I've tried like blueberries and all the berries and I've tried, a um, I haven't tried a lot of stone fruit, but I will try more and more as I like see it, see proof with my own eyes of it, like working, you know? Yeah, you got to leave this cold climate garden or something to, to hang on to as, as, as <laughs> uh, man, I just look forward to like seeing your guys world out there, you know, and I'm, I love berries and, and I miss a lot of that, that summertime uh, stone fruit magic for sure. Peaches. Oh my goodness. But you got, you guys have challenge, unique challenges up there that, you know, I'm sure I'm going to dig my head into someday and, um, I've read, you know, I've read a lot of great stuff on those systems out there and I'd love to make a temperate system with all kinds of cool stuff. You guys are, are collecting the plants before, you know, I get out there. I'm happy about that. So kudos <laughs> <to you. laughs> I see, I see your method. No, um, I, well, so let's, uh, jump back to Ben's question about like, as a perennial permaculture rare fruit enthusiast in the tropics on big island if you could be you know those those few rare fruits you haven't tested yet uh, as you were saying like for the temperate climates for me it's like uh you know yellow horn like a nut tree and gumi which i haven't grown yet but for you the list is endless so if you could just say like top three maybe of things you'd like to grow out there and you haven't yet i think that'd be cool and it has to be edibles? Good question. I mean, I guess nitrogen fixation. Well, I mean, you know, think about the things that we're most interested in. And when I say where, I mean Ben and myself and potential listeners who are most interested in 
permaculture systems, plant breeding, rare, interesting plants. I mean, you know, for me, another thing I'd like to be growing out here more is Siberian pea shrub. It is a nitrogen fixer, but it's also edible. So it doesn't necessarily have to be rare edible fruits, but I guess, uh, yeah, it's up to you, whatever, whatever, whatever the thing is on your mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one because, you know, there's a lot like from the like desert island outlook, you know, it would be one thing and then stuff that stuff that I'd like to try to grow that I haven't yet. It's kind of it's a very broad, it's a very broad amount of things. I'm really sort of enamored by some of the um, plants that are used for caffeine maybe or have different pharmacological properties obviously the ones that come to mind like right off the top that i'm really stoked about is like a plant that has a lot of promise in the tropics i think wayusa is an amazing plant i don't know if you guys have heard of that but it's a amazonian plant in the in the yerba mate family it has theobromine like cacao does and it also has caffeine but it also kind of has these unique compounds and it has a long-lasting energy profile that doesn't really have a mark to come down of any sort and it just has a feeling about it it's really good and and people use it also in lucid dreaming and it's kind of a plant ally it has this kind of mythical you know, quality in, in the folklore about it. It's just a really interesting plant. It's actually used in, in, you know, different Amazonian brews and, you know, things like that really make me kind of like, oh, I got to make sure I get that in my collection and propagate that out and preserve it and, and whatever. And as far as fruits go, there's, there's just so many things that are in like those families that I mentioned where, I'm just waiting to try it and it's a, an amazing thing, but then it, it's not like stirring my whole, like, it's weird when you get like in a, a relationship with a plant. Like I feel like by drinking Guayusa, I established a relate, I dried the leaves. I, I collected it and I got this kind of message from it. That was like, Hey, I could be a part of your life. And I'm like, Hey, you could, you know, couldn't you? And I mean, maybe it's just an extremely addictive uh, property of, of the caffeine or something. But like, to me, that's cool. There's, there's like something talking to me in that plant. So that kind of eclipses some of the fruits I wish to collect, but I got well, like naranjia recently. I like that is thornless. That's very cool. You know, the, the solanaceous fruits are always really interesting to me because they have that attribute where they're often readily fruiting in a few years or a year even or less. And so I like planting stuff in the landscape like that. It's like instantly gratifying. So I'm trying to try more tree tomatoes and more, you know, they're called tamarillos. There's different colors. There's different. So like the poha berry is a really awesome one that we grow, you know, and there's other relatives like the naranjia and pepino and, you kind of dig into those, you know, crops that grow a little quicker and stuff. And, and that interests me a lot because I can use them in, in my landscaping in between my tree crops in like the alley rows, you know, and I'll just, I'll fill in these areas in between my actual grafted trees. 
with all these kind of random cool things like Panama cherry and, and whatever else. So I'm like always on the hunt for that quick little berry or that quick little, you know, whatever it is to fill space. If that helps. Yeah. That's uh, that's an amazing list there. I wrote down Guayusa. I've heard of that before, but I think I get it confused with Guarana, which is probably a very different effect. Yeah. I love right. That. Yeah. No, they're actually kind of similar in their effect. Guarana is, is a seed. Yeah. That's roasted and it's an awesome ethnobotanical plant. I think that is found in, in the same regions. Yeah. Guayusa is just a whole different thing. It's got this kind of thing about it for sure. I've only seen Guarana in, you know, marketed in energy drinks that probably already have too much caffeine. So I, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, it's honestly, if you want like the real Guarana experience, just go to like a health food store and get like, uh, there's one called Guarana energy energizer by source naturals. And it's these pills of, of, you know, Guarana extract and that stuff is absolutely effective for, for getting you, um, to maintain a long like road trip where you have to drive or something. Um, it, it will work in such a, such a profound way that it's almost shocking that it's available over the counter. <laughs> it's medicinal Adderall for, uh, <laughs> it really for- is. And it, it too doesn't have a nasty come down either. It's kind of, it's kind of bitching. Like we're is another great one. Um, that is actually on the list of stuff I need to get in the ground. I had it, had it once and kind of lost it. So this is kind of an interesting segue into one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about, which in general was just medicinals. But there's a few things that we talked about. You mentioned the passion flower before. Now we're getting into this world of uh, you know, tea and caffeine plants, which for the average temperate grower is a little bit more limited. But I think that a lot of temperate growers don't recognize that they could be growing a number of passion fruit plants that actually produce edible fruits and have incredible medicinal, you know, effects on in a number of ways. And also that we can be growing caffeine and tea plants here. So, you know, I'd like, I'd like to delve into maybe a little bit of that in terms of like, one of the first obsessions I had was with passion flowers and Ben has this sort of, passionflower tincture that he promotes that I'm very excited to brew this summer when my passionflowers are, you know, big enough to harvest from, but it's just from the cold hardy, you know, zone five hardy passiflora that is not nearly as exciting as the wide range of passionflowers that you can grow in Hawaii. It's, uh, you know, what, what I'm most excited about is the maypop. And uh-huh. I've acquired a bunch of different varieties of it, of people who've basically created like land raised seeds in their specific area for fruit or for medicinal qualities. Uh, do you ever utilize, you know, your passion flowers as more than just uh, the, for their edible fruits? Do you ever use them for the medicinal effects of like the leaves or the flowers? And then if you could just talk more about any other medicinal plants that you're like really excited about in your landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I love the plant. You know, I love all the passive, passive flower um, plants. I, I just, honestly, I'm bad about using a lot of this stuff that I could for health in my landscape, primarily because, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm mainly just going out and planting and 
And I just like to come in and have like my beverage and, and whatever. And I, there have been phases of my life where, you know, I was way more obsessed with food preparation and I hardly have the energy for it. And my wife, shout out to Katie, does a lot of the harvesting and it's awesome. I make herbal teas when I can and I use holy basil, the, the Tulsi. Um, I have like a number of different varieties of it. I kind of, you know, just pick bits of each one. I add mint to it. I add lemongrass to it. Sometimes I'll use rose geranium. I'll, I'll drink a rosemary tea. Sometimes there's, I have all these herbs around and they're, they're along my paths and I'll walk out and pick them to make tea. And then, and then in the backdrop, I have like chaya and, and moringa and, and some of these ones, which I really should be dehydrating them and, and, and whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're only one person. And this is like <laughs> I a- am. And, and it is, you know, quite, we have at least six acres planted, maybe seven. I have a caretaker that helps me with mowing and some weed whacking. But other than that, it's just me and Katie and Katie is more inside a lot of the time. And with the tropical rampancy, it, it's just, there's no way to like do all the stuff I'd like to do like that. But it's part of collecting these plants and really um, having them in my life is so that I can get to a point where I do use them or share them, obviously. Right. So it's like, it's just like they kind of pop up on the radar and I'll be like, Hey, you, I'm going to use you this week. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll do it, you know? And, and then that's just one box checked off out of hundreds that I could yeah. check yeah. off like the passion flower, you know, it's, I know about that and the teas and all that stuff. And it's, it's awesome that you guys um, have well, one that works out there. There's kind of one for everywhere. It's pretty, it's pretty rad really. I think that it's a little bit more, you know, we're, we're lucky, you know, we're not lucky, but we are lucky being in a cold climate and that we are limited in how many cool things we can experiment with in weird ways and making a purple passion flower anxiety tea is, you know, we're limited in the amount of cool trippy teas we can make. But uh, right. Ben, do you want, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Cause I'm just, you know, this is your story. Yeah, ju- just to plug Passiflora some more. It's it's fast becoming one of my favorite genera. Again, like I follow the the genus and on social media and the people who post about their plants and the flowers. It's got some of the most psychedelic, beautiful, bright colored, diverse flowers of that I've ever seen. They look like you know something an alien designed and that a four-year-old came up with the color scheme because it's it's out of this world, the flowers. So first of all, the flowers are beautiful. The plant grows really, almost all of them that I've tried growing grow really, really well, almost too well. You kind of have to rein them in and the fruits are delicious. If you can get them the fruit in your climate. And then the last benefit that I've, I've only discovered the last few years is if you can make a tea from the leaves and you can make a, you can make a tea from the flowers as well. But what I, accidentally did one time. I don't know why I did this, but I took the flowers and just put them in a mason jar of water, left them in my fridge for about a month. The color came out into the water and didn't even degrade. It just So I have this mason jar of just vibrantly purple, like the most purple Kool-Aid you've ever seen, like that color wow. in my 
That's so pretty rad. I opened it up and, and, you know, I was like, well, I don't really know what this, what I made here. And I gave it a smell and it smelled okay. And I sipped it. It, it had fermented in a really pleasant way. Like the only, the only way I could describe it is it kind of had a little bit of a pickle taste to it. Like the way you'd pickle, um, you know, cucumbers or something. And so I, I drank that just to see, you know, after testing it to make sure, you know, I, cause I never tried these before to make sure I tolerated it. Okay. Tried a little bit more. Then later in the day, I just felt like so relaxed, like more relaxed than I'd ever felt in a long time. And I was like, man, this is great. I wonder, wonder why I feel this way. And I thought back, I was like, Oh, I drank a bunch of that purple drank in my uh, refrigerator and Oh, that's yeah. right. I read about the anti-anxiety, the relaxation benefits of, of Passiflora, Passiflora. And I, I was growing um, incense, the incense cultivar, which I think is incarnata. So I made a video about it on my YouTube channel, The Forest Gardener. Hopefully some people tried it out. And then recently I just made a tea with the, the leaves. I'm growing Passiflora edulis as sort of like a green wall on, near my garage. So I took some leaves and the same thing happened. Just like it, I was just relaxing on my couch and having a grand old time for about an hour and a half and uh, just, just felt very relaxed, very grounded. And so I'd recommend trying that to anyone who is looking to, I mean, I'm not a big fan of relying on herbs every single day to get you through the day to relax, but you know, occasionally you want something extra to help. So I'd recommend people try that. You don't want to mess around with Passiflora cerula, which is uh, toxic. And there's also some reports of unripe, the inner flesh of the fruits of some of these other species being kind of toxic as well, but there's some conflicting information. But if you have Passiflora incarnata, if you have Passiflora edulis, and probably plenty of other species, you should be good to go, but you might just want to do a little bit of research before uh, before self-medicating, let's put it that way. Uh, but yeah, yeah just, I think I, there's some sort of like MAO um, inhibitor uh, thing too. I'm not sure how that relates to medication and stuff, but yeah, it's, it's true. Like, you, you know, herbs are powerful. That's basically what it comes down to. Yeah. It's like, you gotta, never really you gotta know what they are, you know, other herbs. Like I love holy basil, but, and I know that that's supposed to be a stress reliever and, and adaptogenic, but I felt, I feel nice after drinking holy basil, but I never really like felt too much of an effect, but yeah, passion flower definitely does it for me. Uh, Mike, did you have any other questions on like the medicinal stuff or I have, I have a kind of an unrelated question if we could go to that. Well, I think we should go to your question. I just wanted to say that I planted Passiflora cerulea today and had no idea that it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know it was toxic and I feel kind of foolish for planting it now, but. Um, oh yeah, that's, dude, that's something that, you know, when you're planting these plants out and stuff, you like learning about the toxicities is kind of like, a good rule of thumb because there's some powerful stuff in, in a lot of plants, <laughs> like the seeds or something, you know, um, of, of, of uh, star fruit are, are toxic and, you know, the seeds of soursop are toxic. And yeah, there's a lot of different things like that, where if you like made a smoothie and, and got a seed rhubarb there, leaves, you make, you make a yeah. rhubarb leaf smoothie. Yeah, it's, you know, oxalates too are a big thing. Like a lot of people get a little happy about some different um, perennial greens and stuff, but it's like, you got to check like 
like all this stuff is fine for eating like once a week or something, but um, you can't just eat it like every night. Like you, you can eat lettuce every night, you know, if it has a lot of oxalates and different things like that. So yeah, it's an interesting subject getting into like some of the disclaimers around some of these things, which kind of, you just get the memo, like they're just healthy, you know, but then you like, yeah to look below the the radar a little like there was like soursop was like that where there was a a whole viral thing like soursop uh leaves are, are anti-cancer and a tea and and there was a whole big splash about it and people were buying soursop and whatever but if you do if you do research on it soursop is actually like got some mildly sketchy compounds and and you don't really want to eat it super regularly we know all about the sketchy compounds. <laughs> the the, uh, the uh, temperate climate uh, perennial vegetables are full of sketchy compounds. But no. Uh, well, okay. That's a, can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard of gruit? Yes, yes. I've right, drank it. So, I've, cool. I've drank okay. it. Well, the, there's breweries that brew it now, but in, in a nutshell, like the herbs that composed it back in the day, from what I understand... A lot of the main ones, and, and I could reference a book real quick to, to bring some of them up, but um, they are kind of not necessarily things that you would want to consume maybe as regularly as people did back then. Huh. And um, some of them were like very abortative and things like that. Um, huh. But uh, they're fascinating plants. And if I was in your guys' neck of the woods, I would, I would try to collect those um, and, and, and try to get into that world because what breweries are making is just like the, the you know, they're adding a few things that were kind of additions, but like the backbone herbs, like the, the hops of Gruet were these kind of intox mildly intoxicating inebriating herbs, kind of like how you brought up a uh, passiflora. Like it has that relaxant quality that makes you kind of just giddy and, and feel good um, without like, you're not necessarily like high, high, yeah, the, the you know some of these grit herbs are kind of op, uh, operating along some of those lines. I, I drank gruit at the um, the fermentary distillery brewery. It, it, it's just it's the like Forest Farm Fermentary or something like that in um, Portland, Maine, and they had gruit, and they're like uh, taking every delicious flower and fermenting it into whatever they so choose. Anyways, uh, Ben. What was your question for Adam? So one thing that I've, I've learned about the tropics and growing and species selection is in the tropics, people have to really look at elevation, like appropriate elevation for certain plants and, and where that and compare that to where they they're growing. And that's not something that growing in the temperate climates that I've ever had to think about. So is elevation, do you treat it just sort of like cold hardiness as, you know, elevation is higher up, you're going to experience colder temperatures and maybe less humidity. Um, and so, if, you know, a plant is, is rated for thousand meters or above and you're below that, that just means you can't grow it. Or are there ways to get around those, those requirements? And is it something that you even really pay attention to? Yeah. It's something in Big Island that we take into consideration a lot because of how unique our environment is and that from the sea level to the 
you know, up on the foothills of the highest part of the mountain, we have all these different climatic zones. So we can grow most things here. And just in a nutshell, like we could almost grow everything here. We could grow saffron at the, at the higher elevations. You know, we can definitely grow any of the stone fruit. And then as you go down, you know, you're in like perfect country to grow cherimoya. Certain kinds of fruit do pretty good at, at that, like 1500 to 2500 band, kind of like more like mulberries and, you know, things will, the sun doesn't shine as bright up there. So you'll start to see the trunks will get a lot of moss on them and stuff, but trees will still persist and put out fruit. Then you get down, you know, into the lower elevation and it kind of really just opens you up to that entire universe of exotic fruit, really. And that elevation is what I call like the coconut elevation, you know, where if you plant some coconut trees, you're going to guarantee get some nuts and be able to drink them. Whereas if you try to do that up 1500 and above, you're not going to be drinking coconuts and you just got to, you know, work with what you, what you got up there. That's going to work good up there. And, and, you know, you'll maybe be able to grow more like and Andean tubers and like interesting things up there better. And down here, they'll probably just like rot out from, the rains and the low elevation kind of aspects of humidity. It's probably crisper up there and it's real nice, you know, when you get up into those higher elevations up here, but yeah, there, you can't really coax durian out of them, no matter what trick you try to, you know, it's just, it's going to be, you're going to want to just try to grow what grows good for you. And down here you can coax more stuff by, you know, giving it super good drainage or planting it in a mounded elevation. Like you can plant durian and avocados like to where you make a big mound off of the ground and, and actually the root ball, the top of the root ball sits at least a few inches above ground. And that will allow you to prevent some of the more devastating fungal pathogens that we get out here. Adam, what uh, elevation are you? for uh we're like 450 gotcha and when you're when you're talking about making these raised mounds do you utilize sort of like the sepulzer culture kind of method at all or describe a little bit more the what you're doing to keep these plants happy in the raised areas oh yeah yeah sorry uh not the it's not quite like that. It's, it's like, you're just, you're getting whatever topsoil you have, you know, when you, you dig a hole, you're, you're setting that aside and then you got some subsoil that's, it's not that great. And you're going to like amend it with some stuff and make the drainage better, make it fluffier. And then you're going to take that topsoil you set aside and mix it with, you know, a bunch of compost or something. And then you're, you're going to have like a nice circle that you could maybe hug about size, like three feet out or so. And you're going to have that raised above the ground. So, so it's really just like you're adding enough material to where it's, it's a, it's a kind of, it adds a bit more work, but in the end that tree just 
is less likely to get wet feet, you know, where, and, and if you were doing something where you're creating like a berm of material and stuff out here, like the Hugo culture and stuff, uh, it's, there's a lot of factors to consider, um, and things that could go wrong out here, you know? Um, well, what I was going to say is that in sort of this like internet permaculture discourse, there's a lot of talk about using or combining swales and hugo culture as this like, you know, it saves the day method. And yeah. I feel like, yeah, there is. And there's also some pushback saying like, no, that's a horrible idea. Do not do that. <laughs> do not. So yeah, I think those people that are commenting in afterward are probably like, people who have like done it <laughs> you know or like people who have like um seen people do it or something because it's like yeah like stuff can go wrong when you're um putting a bunch of material in like something that floods in a peak season you know of rain i mean as long as nobody gets hurt i bet it would just be a bunch of material you got to clean up or something um kind of sprawled yeah. everywhere which would be sad after putting in like that amount of Hugo culture time, you know? Yeah. I think it's just very important to sort of like take into context a lot of the teachings that are freely available to people who uh, want, <laughs> want to, well, a lot of the teachings that are freely available to people who want to delve into this world. It's all really reliant upon the climate and more than just the climate, the landscape of where you are. And so you who are, you know you're on a large a, a slope on a shield volcano in the middle of the pacific ocean it's gonna be very different than the you know austrian alps where someone who might just look up and say oh hugo culture like on a hill like that looks great let's implement it in my landscape it's you know these things are are very reliant upon a large number of factors yeah yeah there's not a lot of like stuff marketed towards the tropics, you know, like we have this unique thing we have and, and a lot of the information that's out there isn't about us. And that's cool. You know, it's just, it's hard to like get to the bottom of it to, of doing tropical permaculture. And ultimately when you learn about it, you kind of find these like little niche resources in the corner of things and, you're blown away and, and, and you absorb them and, and, and make them your practice in like a way that you never probably would. Most other things that you'd come across because it's just, that's all you've got. You're like, dang, these guys are doing it in this one remote part of Vietnam. I'm going to try this ground cover, you know, and this is going to be the one that like sticks, you know, and it's a trip. Like, and if I type in permaculture, there's not going to be a lot that comes up talking about my environment, but, you know, like up in Queensland, they got a similar thing going and full, the full tropics um, isn't isn't discussed as much. And, and, and we have a lot of the plants that you guys have, too, you know, like a lot of your hardiest plants we can grow, too. It's just a, a, a totally different world. And, and I think yeah, people like you bite off way more than you can chew out it's it's like much easier to bite off way more than you can chew out here <laughs> that's, that's what i'll say about it that's how i feel right now with like 40 containers that i seeded stuff during february 
you know, se seeds that I put out in February and these like little humidity domes that are still sitting there. And these are perennials that are like not large enough to plant out into my property even now in freaking June. So yeah, spending off a, a lot more than you too. I don't know, man. I feel like we've had a great session. This has been like an hour and a half so far, but, um, and I, I've pretty much asked the majority of my questions. I, if only, if anything, I, I look forward to sharing with you some of the, the plants that I'm most excited about that I know can grow in your climate, like purple tree collard. And I don't know, I'll fly out there with some cuttings next time I come. But Ben, do you have any more questions? And if you do, like if there's two or three of them, you know, like let's just go with it. But do you have any more questions for Adam? Uh, I think the main one is, would you want to do a part two sometime? This is this has been a really great uh, conversation and uh, you seem really knowledgeable and passionate just like Mike and I. Oh yeah, yeah, thanks Ben. It was, it was awesome talking to you guys. I, I, I'd be happy to talk to you guys another time for sure. And, and when I do, you know, I'd like to hear more about uh, what you guys are doing out there and, and some of the stuff you guys are getting deep into, you know, cause I'm not just crazy about these plants, you know, I like to know about all the different stuff. And if, if something like strikes my attention enough, I'm like, I'm, I'll, I'll try to grow that. I'll try to figure that out. Ben, why don't you tell Adam about your crazy um, non tuber producing sweet potato, just like on that note. <laughs> uh, that story that's a good one um so uh i heard uh eric tonesmeyer in his talk he spoke about uh sweet potato as a as a vegetable for the edible leaves for the stalks and and that was a long time ago and i always knew you could eat the the leaves and and stems of uh regular sweet potato and so i i did that for a couple of years and then I heard in another talk him mention that there were certain varieties from the Philippines and maybe other parts of Southeast Asia that were varieties that were like bred or cultivated specifically as a vegetable that have both have like better tasting, more tender stems and greens, but also because they're not dumping energy into their tubers, they're actually, you know, spending more of that energy growing their vegetative parts. And so I was like, all right, well, I love a good plant hunt and I love trying to find something that no, that shows no Google results when you try to search it up. So yeah. a couple of days and track down a nursery that specialized in sweet potatoes and they no longer offered that on their website, like the variety that I was looking for, but I found something from like 2004 when they one one year in their catalog, they offered this particular variety they just called Asian Greens. So I emailed them and they're like, "Yeah, we don't. I don't think we have we have that anymore. Um, I'm not quite sure." I'm like, "Okay, well, you know, if you do find it, if you if you look and you don't see it, thanks anyway. But if you are able to stumble across it, I would love to to buy it and um, you know whatever price you think is fair." And Sure enough, a couple of days later, like, oh, you know what? In the way back of our farm, we actually still have that growing um, or in their greenhouses. I can't remember. And they sent me some cuttings and uh, it delivered as promised. It, it grows very, very fast, kind of like maybe not quite as fast as that grass that you talked about, but it, it, uh, it, it provides ample greens throughout the year. Um, nothing seems to slow it down except the first frost. Um, and then I just basically take cuttings that will of course root in 24 hours, <laughs> maybe, maybe shorter. Uh, I'll take cuttings and grow it as a house plant indoors. It doesn't really like 
you know, the cooler temperatures or not having enough sunlight, but it survives. And then I just plant out the cuttings in the spring and get another huge, beautiful ground cover of these big, like cordate green leaves. And yeah, they're delicious. And it's nice just to always have vegetables, uh, some sort of vegetable growing throughout the year from early in the spring to late in the fall. And so maybe I'll, I'll send some I might've already sent something like, I can't remember, but that, when he goes out to Hawaii, he'll, maybe you can bring that in. Uh, you can import some of, of that, those sweet potatoes. I'm just imagining how big they would get in, you know, like they like could be like potentially invasive, or something. <laughs> you know, like just like, well, that's, no, that's, that's serious matter. Like sometimes out here, like I think those, um, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that family. Is it Ipomia? Ipomia. Yeah, that those guys can be very uh, rambunctious. Yeah, and I think they, I think some of them are on the noxious weed list, like um, that Kang Kong. Uh, I was I brought up uh, to Mike. That one I think is on the noxious weed list, um, yeah. which surprised me. You know, and yeah, I'd be curious. Like, do you know the Latin name of? Is it just like a sweet potato, and it's just a different cultivar, or does it have a different? I believe so. Name? Yeah. Sapo Maria uh, Batatas. And I mean, it, oh, it, okay. it's just like a sweet potato, except when you dig it up, it has more like net roots and it does have little tubers, I guess, but they're like, I don't know, the size of like your pinky finger. Just a- Oh, interesting. I, I'd like to see a picture of the foliage because um, we actually had this variety that I stopped growing because it was so vigorous of a vegetative grower and it would just make these meager little tubers you know and um i use a lot of them in in my landscape design you know as a ground cover and this one would climb cages like my fruit tree cages it would like climb up the cages and go just colonize the whole cage like a like a twining vine you know yeah from what Um, this one one behaves itself fairly well because the stems are kind of erect they don't they're not super flexible. They kind of just are crispy and break off, but I also harvested it so heavily that maybe it didn't have a chance to take over like my, my yeah. cages and things like that. But yeah, I'll send you some photos. Cool. Yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah. I, we got a yellow uh, variety that we really like out here. It's just a, a, like the traditional kind of yam looking sweet potato and it's not like Hawaiian or anything, but we do, we do have one of the Hawaiian cultivars, which just makes a huge sweet potato. That's what like white inside. Yeah. They're sweet. Now I want to eat some sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great when we have them around They're they're such a great crop. And, um, you know, the pigs will dig them up if we don't plant them in a, oh, I'm sure a protected place. And then the leaves, a lot of the time get pretty bad mite damage. And like in the food, the agroforestry systems I have going on there, but they, they hold the post, you know, they get it off the ground and that's really what's key. Before we close up here, I just want to say, Adam, do you, do you remember that uh, sort of ornamental mulberry tree planted out front of my grandparents' house? Do you, do you recall that one when we, when we visited? I remember you showing me a picture of it. That mulberry tree that supposedly doesn't have very tasty fruit surprisingly has like the most delicious <laughs> like tree leaves I've ever had. Like tastes better than spinach or even like raw lettuce. And I've tried them mm-hmm. on two or three occasions now and just been absolutely blown away. And you know, like huh. we talk 
talk about like a cold climate species that has been overlooked. I mean, we're talking about, you know, sweet potato, but, you know, for the edible greens. And Ben and I had previously talked about this, but I just wanted to kind of clue you in that, like, you know, we, we just walked right past it and we're like, oh, cool, a mulberry tree. But now, oh my God, like the leaves, I, I had no idea at the time that mulberry leaves were even edible. And they're not only edible, but apparently delicious when it comes to whatever certain cultivars. Yeah, they're um, a substitute for grape leaves in the dolmas uh, in the Greek restaurants. Yeah, they're awesome. I'm a fan. I, I've, you know, like for tea and stuff, I've never like, I don't know um, if that like is a better variety or they're all good or what. Uh, a lot of the time we like get powdery mildew on the on the foliage out here. So you guys are lucky. Um, you don't have that problem as much. Yeah. Now the, the powdery mildew mostly just uh, messes with the zucchini and whatnot. But in any case, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for talking with us. For, for any listeners, we've been speaking with Adam Crow of Ina Exotics. And you can check out Adam's website at inaexotics.com. Is that right? Yep, Ina Exotics, A-I-N-A Exotics, and um, we're on Etsy as well. We have a little store. If you, um, we have seeds and cuttings available, and uh, we have Relinia on there, for instance, is one of the seeds we sell, and just put some cool different guavas up on there. It'll be um, ever-evolving, I'm sure. But no, yeah, it's in a bare-bones stage right now, but... As, as you know, if you consider all the things that are in the ground over here, it's going to be quite a store one day. <laughs> I'm super stoked to, um, you know, get out there and see what you guys have collected too. And it was good um, chatting with you, Ben. I hope to touch base in the future too. Thanks, thanks, Michael, for hosting us. No worries. Well, until part, um, have a good evening and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, mm -hmm. my friend. Have a good one. Aloha. Blessings. Aloha. Uh -huh.